Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The cheerleaders at a gym in Buffalo have been recording themselves. What's up? To make a new documentary. We're the so-called news reporters. Because one year ago, a mass shooting changed their lives. He just walked around and shot all the black people. The cheer squad, most of whom are black, had to figure out how to go on and how to compete. I wanted the win for them more than anything this season. Listen to the Embedded podcast from NPR within the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carol Fisher, and I'm hosting a podcast called The Girlfriends. It's Las Vegas, it's the 1990s, and it is time to find a husband. There were four Jewish doctors who were felt to be eligible bachelors. One of them was Bob Berenbaum. On paper, he was perfect, but in reality... This guy's a wacko. He choked her to the point she went unconscious. I would call him and I would say, I know you killed my sister. You can listen to The Girlfriends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the unbelievable but true story of George Remus. He was an eccentric and genius lawyer who figured out how to game the system during Prohibition. Remus is the biggest man in the business. But George Remus's wild existence took a dark and shocking turn, leading to betrayal, revenge, and one of the most sensational murder trials in American history. Listen to Remus, the Mad Bootleg King, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. L.A. is expansive. There's nearly 10 million people living here, and it comes with a lot of noise. But if you tune those sounds out and listen close, you'll hear the real LA. What up, these stars? Hey, Jim. <laughs> 
I'm going to be a father? Yes. You feeling this? A fiction podcast mixtape about love. Listen to it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Are you aware at any time that Jake and your dad and your mom were planning to kill the brother? No. Was that ever discussed with you? No. He said straight up, we don't get along. He said there were times he wanted to leave, and I wondered if that was really true. Maybe he did want to leave, but he didn't do it. Describe your relationship with him. I looked at Hannah as a baby sister. I personally was surprised that the defense specifically said, were you there? Did you do anything? Did you know about it ahead of time? When did you find out that they were guilty or that they had actually participated? I never would have believed my family would be capable of doing something of this magnitude. This is the Pike Massacre, Return to Pike County, Season 4, Episode 21. George Wagner takes the stand. I'm Courtney Armstrong, a television producer at KT Studios with Stephanie Lidecker and Jeff Shane. It's important to note that George Wagner has pleaded not guilty and has maintained he did not kill anyone. His father, Billy Wagner, whose trial is upcoming, has also pleaded not guilty to all charges. Facing a mountain of evidence and testimony placing George Wagner IV at the center of the plot to kill the Roden family, his lawyers made the surprising decision to call him to the stand. The unexpected move was described as a, quote, Hail Mary by many trial watchers. During his testimony, George Wagner's lawyers painted him as the black sheep of the family. During the first day of his testimony, George calmly disputed nearly everything that had been said about him by other witnesses. And while describing his criminal upbringing, George Wagner frequently spoke of wanting to escape from his own family. Today, it was a bombshell day, if you will, of testimony. For nine weeks, George Wagner IV has sat quietly as a parade of witnesses, from police investigators to his own brother and mother, picked apart his claim of innocence and ignorance. George, let me adjust this microphone for you. Just keep your voice up real loud so the jury can hear you. Please state your full name for the record. George Washington Wagner IV. You've been sitting in this trial for many weeks now, right? Yes. But on the 42nd day of the trial, wearing a white-collar dress shirt, dark tie, and a gray vest, George Wagner took the stands in his own defense. His attorney began by asking George to describe the troubled environment he grew up in. Let's talk about your education first. Okay. Um, Did you ever go to a public school? For a very short period of time. So how did you get your education? My mother homeschooled us. But George Wagner's homeschooling didn't last long. By the age of 14, his official education was over. It was replaced by a different type of education. Why did you quit? I felt that I didn't need it anymore, and I just wanted to do my own thing. My father quit in the sixth grade. And And so what did you want to do uh, when you quit school? What did you want to do with your life? um, Did you have any goals or aspirations? When I was a young kid, I wanted to be either a game warden or a forester. Then when I got older, my father pushed me more towards being a diesel mechanic and a truck driver. And why was that, do you know? My father didn't want nobody in the family that wore a badge. Why was that? He thought all law enforcement was crooked. George Wagner said when he was young, he and his father had a great relationship and that the pair spent many days hunting and fishing together. 
But his father, Billy Wagner, was also responsible for George Wagner's other education. In your youth, did he teach you other things? My father taught me how to open a lock, how to steal fuel, how to steal loads or break into loads. How did he actually do it? Did he set you down, explain how that worked? He bought a, like a lock pick set, comes with like a whole bunch of different locks and picks, and then you set us down for hours until we could figure out how to open it. And what would, what would he do, if anything, would you once you learn how to do that? Um, after my brother and I learned how to do it, he would go from like hotel to hotel in different counties and open the vending machines in them. Would he do it or would he have you do it? Usually you'd have my brother do it. Why your brother? Because my brother can open a lock in a matter of seconds. Alright. And what about you? Three, four minutes. So your brother was a little better at picking locks than you? Yes. But your dad took both of you around to pick locks? Yes. What kind of locks would he have you pick? Um, Padlocks, vending machine locks was the most common, uh, door locks on trucks, ignition switches. All right. And what would be the purpose? Um, the vending machines? Yeah. Uh, he would take the coin box and the cash box out of them. And did he teach you anything else around that age? Just how to break into trailers and drive off with loads. And All right. Explain steal. how that worked. Um, <clears throat> with the... Uh, Loads, you go around, take the padlock and the uh, hinges off so you don't break the seal. It's, if the seal is broken, it's instantly somebody's been in it, so you've got to take a hinge off and open it without it. But uh, you see what's in the trailer. If it's something you wanted, then you unload it. If it's not, you put the hinge back on. Nobody ever knows it was opened. All right. And your brother was with you? Yes. All right. And he would pick out the truck? Yes. Did he have any, like, methods or codes or anything like that as far as how would he pick out a certain truck? Um, usually it had to end up being a uh, company truck, but Walmart was like the one he went after more than anything. And, and why was that, do you know? He despises Walmart. I don't and, know why. Now, did your mother know about these activities? Yes, she was there 99.9% of the time. She was in the truck with you? Yes. And she knew your father was teaching? Yes. Were there other things that your father taught you around this um, How to steal fuel. <coughs> steal fuel. Yes. So, uh, your dad taught you to steal fuel and pick locks. When you would go out with your father, would he ever teach you to look out for things or not look out for things? Was there anything like that? So, um, the job was you were always supposed to make sure you could see a cop before they seen you or to know where every camera was. All right. So, what, explain how he taught you. It... Uh, it really goes back to when I was a kid and he was still around in Pennsylvania a lot. Um, for every cop me or my brother would see, we'd get a dollar when we were a kid. All right. And that goes back to like eight years old, even before he started the theft. All right. And how long did that last? Till we were 10, 11. He would go around and uh, start out with the, uh, we'd go down one street or something, and if we missed one that he missed, then we'd, lose the four-wheeler for a week. Like, if he pointed one out that we didn't see, we'd get four-wheeler taken for a week. Here's Stephanie and Jeff. The fact that George Wagner took the stand in his own defense, unexpectedly, nobody in the courtroom was anticipating him to take the stand that day. 
And I have to say, he was very composed. He seemed very prepared. I mean, think about it. The stakes could not be higher for him. And when he describes his childhood, it's almost as though he was born into a family of con artists. You know, here he is being taught how to pick padlocks and steal fuel and steal coins from vending machines. These are crimes. Granted, they are petty crimes and, and nowhere equivalent to murder, but it does paint a picture of what was happening in his early days. It's possible that the defense was feeling the pressure and decided it can't hurt to have George Wagner take the stand. And I think he did a pretty good job. He does not seem emotional. To me, he seems more credible than Jake and Angela Wagner. Now, it might be different because Jake and Angela Wagner's stories line up. He said, she said, versus he said. I mean, he's extremely prepared for this moment. You know, we might be surprised, but I imagine this is something he and his lawyers were working on for weeks and probably running through potential questions and potential answers. So for him, this is the culmination of probably a lot of practice. And remember, accused killer dad, Billy Wagner, he's very anti-government, anti-law enforcement. We've heard many, many stories about him preparing for the end of days. So the other side of this is, you know, they live in a very rural area. In the event of a disaster, Billy Wagner wanted to make sure that their kids were prepared and could survive in any situation. That's the nice way of framing it. But the truth is, they were stealing, and they were stealing on a very high level at a very young age. If I'm the Roden family, I'm thinking... I don't care. There's no excuse for allegedly murdering eight people. To me, you know, you got your ATV taken away as a kid. I don't know how that equates to being a part of an eight person homicide. But again, I mean, this whole case, you know, we've heard a lot of things that we don't think are relevant and what the jury's thinking and what the judge is thinking, we can't say. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting context because obviously George Wagner's attorneys are really painting a picture of a guy who was considered maybe second best to his brother. Much has been made about perhaps Jake was favored by his parents and that George was always the outcast and trying to step away from the family and maybe look away from their scams and cons and just try to get out to make a better life for himself. It matters maybe because it offers some insight into how he just has always been used to ignoring them. And maybe that's how he was able to ignore the fact that his family was commiserating to murder eight people. Or is that just wildly far-fetched? It's now decades later. Does that excuse you of what you're being accused of? On the other hand, it also does paint a picture of how people are potentially indoctrinated into really dangerous behavior. By the time George Wagner was a teenager, he said he was growing apart from his own family and that he was growing closer to his uncle, Chris Newcomb. The two regularly went hunting and rode ATVs around the farm. Let's talk about Chris for a moment. Uh, explain your relationship with Chris. Chris is more like a brother to me than an uncle. Why do you say that? We are almost identical in everything we like and do. And what type of things would you do? Uh, go mudding, hunting, fishing. Just see how far we could go on a four-wheeler in a day. And would Jake be part of this? In his own way, sometimes, yes. All right. He was always left behind. And why was he left behind? He didn't want to get his four-wheeler or his dirt bike, whatever he had dirty, and he'd run like two miles an hour. And how were you and Chris doing? Kind of like a battle of hell. 
George Wagner said his brother Jake preferred to play video games and to play with action figures. He had hundreds of them. Every dime he got as a young kid, he spent on action figures. He uh, would set them up on a shelf and stare at them for hours. And did you play with them as well? No. But I would go in and move them when he wasn't there just to see if he'd notice it. And you could move it like a centimeter and he'd know. And did that ever cause any problems? Many, many fights. Would you do that just to kind of double your brother? Just to antagonize him, yes. Antagonize him? Did he have any particular video games he liked? Marvel Universe, Resident Evil, uh, Left 4 Dead. Uh, there's another one. I can't remember what it was. What other type of things would you and Chris do as you got older? Drink, party, run girls. Wagner testified he started drinking alcohol at age 13 and was partying regularly. Around the time he was 18 years old, George met Frankie Roden. The pair became quick friends. Did you consider him a good friend or? I considered him one of my best friends. George said his life changed once he got his driver's license. He made new friends and was able to get away from his mother, Angela, and brother, Jake. And why is that? Because I have freedom. And I could leave when I wanted. I'd hang out with my uncle or Frankie or Sean and Nathan Walls and Garrett Leaf. All right. And did that cause any problems back home on Bethel Hill? My mom was never happy about it. Tell us about that. She always said that I was leaving my brother to do all the work and I needed to be more like him and stay home. Around the time George got his driver's license, his father Billy Wagner bought him a used Chevy pickup truck for about $2,500. But even that purchase created lasting tension because Billy Wagner also bought a more expensive pickup for Jake. He got his three or four months before mine. My mother made my father buy it for him. All right, was it a cheap truck, an expensive truck? It was $16,000. Okay. So he got this $16,000 truck before you got any truck? Yes. And how did that make you feel? Considering the one I wanted was, I was told no for and then a couple weeks later, they bought my brother's truck that was the same price. It's not a good feeling for a 15-year-old. And did you express your feelings? I brought it up many times my entire life. A little bit bitter about that. Yes, still am. With freedom and new friends, George Wagner spent most of his free time partying with Frankie Rodin at nearby Big Bear Lake. Describe the drinking parties or whatever that you did there. We played drinking games and drank until one of us fell out, which was usually me. Okay. Did you enjoy that? Yes. Did that cause any problems back at the home on Bethlehem? Uh, yeah, my mother didn't like me being down there. Why not? She said it was a bad environment and uh, bad influences, and I was basically going to end up sending myself to hell from it. And how would she tell you that, or when would she tell you that? Almost daily. George testified that his mother, Angela, regularly berated him for his immoral lifestyle. Also, that she viewed Jake as an angel. When my mother had him paranoid that he was going to go to hell and she kept beating into everybody's head, if you do anything, that you're making Jesus cry and you're going to end up going to hell. She would say that all the time. If you say one curse word or if you do anything that she thought was inappropriate. What would she say? That you're in, you know, going down a entirely bad road or you're making Jesus cry for this or that or depending on the situation. What was your reaction? I really didn't have one. I did what I wanted to do. What about Jake? Jake was always terrified of going to hell. 
How would you describe Jake as compared to you at this point? At this point? Yeah. We are nothing alike. And how would you describe your relationship as you went through your teen years? I spent as much time away from Jake as I possibly could. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. I hope nobody thinks I got this story because I slept with a guy. So how does a half-American, half-Nicaraguan party girl from New Orleans with absolutely no journalism experience break the biggest story of the 80s? That's what Journalista is all about. I'm a woman, not wearing a bra, curses like a sailor. I got balls bigger than any man. Dan Rather used to call me his secret weapon. Pablo gave me half a pound of cocaine for the wedding. We work hard, but we party even harder. Because you never knew if the next day's battle was going to be the one that killed me. We were up in the air. I heard three somethings. I looked at one soldier and I said, that's not a good sound, is it? No, we're going down. And I said, what do you mean we're going down? And then we started to go down. Listen to Journalista every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They say history is written by the victors. But you know what? They left out a hell of a lot of juicy stuff. Take Abe Lincoln's assassination. Did you know a young couple was sitting right next to him when he was shot? It haunted the husband so much, he later murdered his wife. Ah, we all know who invented that, right? (laughs) Well, think again. Truth is, Alexander Graham Bell stole the idea for the telephone and then claimed it as his own. For every pivotal moment in history, there's always a backstory. And it's usually way more interesting than the big story. From mysterious murders to the baffling sleep schedules of yesteryear to the fascinating lives of those just outside the limelight, we're going to uncover the forgotten pieces of history you didn't know you needed to know. Listen to The Backstory with me, Patty Steele, twice a week on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carol Fisher, and I'm hosting a podcast called The Girlfriends. Back in the 1990s in Las Vegas, a few of us dated the most eligible bachelor in town, Bob. He spoke several languages. He did medical missionary work, and he was Jewish. He was perfect on paper. But he wasn't. He really wasn't. He choked her to the point she went unconscious. Bob could lie about anything. It only takes the one time and somebody ends up dead. Unfortunately for Bob, us girlfriends know how to fight back. I wanted him to pay for his crime. He needed to be put to justice. I'll be honest with you, if I saw him right now, I'd spit on him. I would call him and I would say, I know you killed my sister. I will always hound you and haunt you. You can listen to The Girlfriends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here, host of Revisionist History, a show about the overlooked and the misunderstood. Stories you won't hear anywhere else. Like our ongoing obsessive campaign to blow up the world's most bogus college ranking system. Why not just throw in a few extra zeros? (laughs) Or witness me after years of fancy public speaking, learning that I kind of have to start over. The tone that you had throughout the debate was very similar to some of the students that I do work with. Um, And that's what I teach them not to do. 
We're making more revisionist history for you this year than ever from places all across this great country. Emergency rooms, huge theaters, small towns, and shooting ranges. And you want to put your thumb up like this. Now you're going to pull the trigger with this finger here, okay? Listen to Revisionist History on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. George described his brother Jake as rude and lacking a filter. If he goes to somebody's house and he thinks it's dirty, he's going to tell him your house is filthy. If he thinks you stink, he'll tell you to go take a shower. He has no filter. Did that cause a problem? Yes, he insults people, and a lot of my friends and stuff didn't like him being around. Did that cause you problems? Yes, because then they didn't want to hang out with me. My uh, <clears throat> brother thinks that he's a saint and can do no wrong, and he's better than everybody, and he uh, thinks that him being honest with people is what people wants to hear about his opinion of their self. And did that cause a problem with your relationship with your mom? Yes, my mother thinks that I should be like him. She's always said that. What do you mean? She thinks that he's a saint and does no wrong, and she thinks that I'm basically going to hell. Here's investigative journalist and law and crime reporter Anjanette Levy. He made it sound like, you know, Angela favored Jake. He always got in trouble for what Jake did. Jake would blame him for things when they were kids. But, I mean, he said straight up. We don't get along. We'd fight all the time, and sometimes we'd get along, and then most of the times we didn't. I can't imagine existing like that. He said there were times he wanted to leave, and I wondered if that was really true. Maybe he did want to leave, but he didn't do it. Later, George told the jury that his younger brother Jake was also regular at Big Bear Lake. But instead of partying, Jake would hang out with his new 13-year-old girlfriend, Hannah Mae Roden. He would sit in the tent or around the campfire back in... The yard where the tent was with Hannah all night. But he wouldn't join in with the drinking? No, and he wouldn't let Hannah either. Did Hannah try to join sometimes? Yes. And what would Jake do? Jake wouldn't let her go. Do you know why? He didn't want Hannah having bad influences or drinking or partying. At this point in George's testimony, having set up the tensions between George and his mother and brother, defense attorney John Parker pivoted back to the Wagner's life on Bethel Hill and began to unpack the Wagner's history of criminal activity. The first house was a single wide trailer. All right, what happened when you were six years old? To uh, my mother tried to burn the house down that failed because she didn't know what she was doing in the beginning. All right, explain. Uh, the If there's no air, it smothers out, and she had everything closed up in the beginning. So just the kitchen, living room area burnt. All right, and your mother set that on fire? She had my father set it on fire, but it was her plan, and she's the one who taught my father how to do it. And you remember this when you were six or seven years yes. old? And what did you think about that when you were a kid? I really had no input on it. George said after his parents remodeled their first trailer, they added a second one. But once again, his parents set fire to their newly remodeled home. In 2000, you were about nine years old? Roughly. All right. And what do you mean they burned that uh, They burned that one down and succeeded with that one. Who's that? My father and my mother. How did they burn? Same method as always, a whole bunch of newspapers stuck underneath the fuse box. So at this point in time, when you're nine years old approximately, your first two homes have been burned by your mom and dad? Yes. Later, the Wagners built a more permanent home on their property. 
It was nicknamed the, quote, Kentucky Wonder Mansion, and George said he was fond of this house because he had his own area that allowed him to leave whenever he wanted. George said he often did this to avoid working with his mother in her dog breeding business. She expected me and my brother to put in eight and ten hour days and basically not get paid for it. Okay. So every time she'd turn her back, I'd be gone. And so what did your mom think of that? She always throw a fit for me leaving my brother. And did she sell a lot of dogs? Lots of them. Right. You made money on it? A lot. All right. And what type of dogs did you sell? The, at that point, English Bulldogs and Labrador Retrievers. So purebreds? Yes. Were they always purebred? She would, we'll start with the labs. The, the, the English Bulldogs were legit, because it's hard to find something that looks like them, but the labs, if one of the females had eight pups. She would go to the pound and get four or five more that looked like them. And if she sold the eight, she'd just say she didn't sell the eight. And then she'd resell the ones that she got from the pound that may or may not be a lab. Occasionally, if it had a white spot on a black dog that looked identical to a lab, she'd just dye the hair. She would do what? She would dye the hair so it would turn it black and you wouldn't know it had a white spot on it. And how long did the dog business go on? Until it burned. What happened? Uh, we came home from Columbus one night, late at night, and it was laying in ashes. What was laying in ashes? Uh, all four dog kennels. And how many dogs? Close to 100. And did you ever find out how that dog kennel burned? No. But the fires didn't stop. George said his parents burnt the Kentucky Wonder Mansion in 2007 when his parents considered moving to Alaska. However, they decided to stay in Ohio and built a new house, which contained a special room in the basement for a new business opportunity with Chris Roden Sr. All right, and what was that room used for? It was used for growing marijuana. Explain that. Uh, it was 10 foot wide by 40 foot long. All right, and were you ever in that room? No. Why not? I don't agree with drugs. George also testified that his family once stole a truckload of boots. From the beginning, my father and other people that he drove with had two choices. Basically, they were either going to take a load of diapers or a load of Rocky boots. Who actually hooked the trailer, I can't say. I was not there. I don't know who hooked it. But the plan was either the diapers or the boots. My mother was pushing for the diapers, and my father and his friends all wanted the boots. So my mother sided with them, and they went with the boots. Okay, so what happened? Then the boots showed up, and my dad's friends and their family, my dad, my brother, and I, and my mom unloaded the trailer. All right, and so what, what happened next? We unloaded it, it got divided three ways, and then they hauled the trailer out while everybody hauled their boots to whoever's house they were going to. And how many boots are we talking about here? 53-102 load. Thousands. Thousands of boots? Yes. Right. And your mom was involved in that? Yes. She helped plan it. She helped plan it? Yes. And so... Did you guys get some of the boots? Everybody in Pike County was wearing Rocky boots at that point. Are you aware of any other thefts like between 2005-2014 that your mom or dad or family was involved? How many do you want me to go into? Because I can go for days. George Wagner detailed many other crimes his family committed, from stealing Dell computers to copper wiring. After the items were sold, George said his father, Billy Wagner, would hide money around the country. Did your dad ever tell you something about a pension plan he had? Uh, my father used to uh, <coughs> say that he buried money across the U.S. in different spots. What do you mean by that? Um, when he'd get big 
uh, big loads of stuff that he would take and haul it to uh, Mexico and sell. He would take the money and bury it. Where would he bury it? I can't say that. I just know somewhere between here and Texas. That's what he told you? He said multiple places. So if I understand you, he would take a load of what? Uh, copper, aluminum, zinc. All right. And he would come back? Yes. What would he come back with? Brown paper bags full of money. How much money? Anywhere between a hundred, two hundred thousand, depending on what the price of scrap was at that time. And how do you know that? Because my brother and I would count it. That was your job? Yes. To count that money? Yes. Here again, Stephanie and Jeff. This is pretty shocking. It's a pretty wild detail. Two hundred thousand dollars in a little brown bag is a lot of cash. So you're buying scraps, you're stealing scraps of aluminum and copper, and then hiding the money in various places throughout the country. It's a big plan. It shows a lot of thinking. By the way, if any of the Wagners were using some of these clever ways of making money legally, imagine how successful they would be. It takes a lot of thought and preparation and care to even come up with the plan to be able to hide money in various parts of the country and all of the stealing and the thieving and the arson and the receipts it's just all used for bad does that mean it's not such a leap to imagine them as murderers maybe not where i think george wagner's testimony goes a little off the rails is this section about burying money and all of the things because to me it just makes the whole family only seem more out of their minds. And they looked at themselves as this criminal enterprise who everyone was out to get them and they were being trailed and tracked at all moments of the day, so much so that they had to hide money across the country in brown paper bags. It only to me adds to the level of depravity and true lunacy that was going on inside this home that by all accounts, George Wagner IV was very much a part of. Let's stop here for another break. Despite being close to his father as a young boy, the pair grew apart when George was a teenager and after his father Billy began driving long-haul truck routes. After the dog kennels burned, the last one, um, my father started driving the truck. And did you notice any changes in your father after he started driving the truck? Uh, yes. Explain it. My father has a habit of wanting to be identical to whoever he takes as a father figure at the time. What do you mean by that? He has daddy issues. So when he started driving truck, did you notice a change? Yes. What did you notice? The guy he was driving with uh, took multiple different things to stay awake, and my father couldn't keep up with him, so he started doing the same thing. What do you mean he started doing the same thing? He would take what the guy he was driving with was taking. Like taking? Uh, multiple handfuls of Adipex and pain pills. And did you notice any changes in his behavior? It made him very irritable, hard to be around. Did that cause any problems in your relationship with him? A lot. He said he had a tumultuous relationship with his father, Billy, and recalled three fist fights they got into over the years. My brother ran me over with my own truck when he was trying to hook up a trailer, and I was yelling at my brother, and for some reason my father went off on me. Right, and he said your brother ran you over. Was that on purpose or an accident? He was not paying attention. Were you injured? Not really, just a little black and blue. So what happened? Uh, my father thought I was just yelling at my brother for no reason and pushed me up against my truck and dared me to hit him. Okay, and you were 16? Yes. And so what happened? 
I was just fed up with it, so I hit him. What do you mean you hit him? I hauled off and hit him. With your fist? Yes. And what happened then? Uh, he hit the ground, and he got back up, and we went into a fist fight. And how long did that last? A few minutes until my mother broke it up. And so, did that first fist fight affect your relationship with your dad? We didn't speak for a few weeks after that. And so, were there other instances or other times when you got into a fight with your dad? Yes, three, three more I remember. Two more fist fights and one that was just like a massive verbal argument. He called me dumb, say I wouldn't listen, uh, called me ignorant all the time. And how old were you about? In my late teens. Okay. And so what happened next? I hit him again. Did he hit your back? Yes. What happened? Uh, we got into another fist fight for four or five minutes until it ended. Did that affect your relationship? Another three or four weeks of no talking to each other. In early 2016, there was another fight between George and Billy. This one nearly turned deadly. My father got upset and while I was leaving and broke the passenger side window out of the truck and shattered me in glass. How did he do that? He punched the window. And then what happened? Then my AR was kept on my dash. He grabbed it and threw it across the yard into the dog pen. What's an AR? It's an AR-15. That's a gun? Yes. And so he broke out the passenger side window and grabbed your gun that was on the dash, yes. you say? And so... What happened after he threw your AR? I got upset because he just threw my AR that I just recently bought a few months prior, and me and my father went to another fist fight. And what happened there? Um, not to really go into a lot of detail, but my father lost. Okay. So did that affect your relationship? Yes. We went over two months without speaking, I want to say. More on that next time. For more information on the case and relevant photos, follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. The Piketon Massacre is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Connor Powell, Andrew Arnau, Gabriel Castillo, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Music by Jared Astin. The Piketon Massacre is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies 
Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.